I was um, reading an article the other day. It was about um, it was about the um, media's portrayal of of families on TV. Uh, basically, it's talking about how there's been this like evolutionary shift that has taken place in how um, TV shows depict families um, on on TV. Obviously, it talked about how like during the glory days of of TV. The families that were praised were idealistic families, were families that we all longed to be a part of. There were families like uh, the Cleaver family from Leave it to Beaver, like this perfect, beautiful family, a mother, father, a couple kids, and um, everything that they did was perfect. Then there was uh, the Cosby family. We all wanted to be part of the Cosby family, all the great and fun things that they did, and kids were always in line, and if they weren't in line, then by the end of the show, they would get back in line. There was the Cosbys, the Seavers from... What show is the Seavers? Growing Pains. Very good. Growing Pains. The Seaver family. There was all these, these families that were presented in these beautiful idealistic pictures of how we wanted what we wanted our families to look like. And then came the, the influence of reality TV. And with reality TV came this picture of a family that we all know is real, but at the same time, we don't really see them pictured on TV as such. It's the idea of a dysfunctional family. So you've got families like the Osbournes, right, who their dad is so, like, spaced out out there on drugs that he needs subtitles to understand what he's saying, right? This is the Osborne family. Then there was, um, the, you know, how can you keep up with the Kardashians, right? Even today, a product, a dysfunctional family. And then you have John and eight plus Kate and all of these other families because Kate was the real child. You see, that was a pun. But all, these, all this to say that in reality TV, it presented these dysfunctional families. And, the, and, and people have said that the reason why we're drawn to families like this, to watching shows like this, to watching shows like um, Ricky Lake and Jerry Springer that talks about all these like jacked up families is because there's something about it as we watch it that we take pride in saying, at least my family's not that bad. And then today... It's not dysfunctional families per se. It's not idealistic families per se. It's entertaining families. Right? That's the shift. The shift has gone from years past from the idealistic family to the dysfunctional family to now just the entertaining family. Right? Whatever the family looks like, as long as they're entertaining, we can connect with them. And so there's a show called The Modern Family, which purports itself to be which a caricature, a gross caricature, of course, but it's entertaining about three different families who are presented as this is your modern family. And they're extremely entertaining, and the, and the characters are so relatable in a sense that it draws us in. The entertainment value, the relationship value, and all of these things. Throughout history, the portrayal of families on TV has changed, but one thing constantly remains true. Whether we've had good families, like characterized by warmth and joy and comfort and peace and love and all those things, or we've had bad families marked by pain and anger and suffering and bitterness and infighting and squabbling. Whether we've had a good family or a bad family, that all of us longs to be part of a good family. Where love flows freely. Where we can be cared for. Where we can care for other people. It's an institution that God has given to us to be part of a family in order to see and to be a living picture of our relationship with God. Right? So important is the idea of family that on the cross, as Jesus Christ died for our sins, seven things that he said on the cross, and one of these things related very closely with the idea of a family. So if you turn in your Bible to John chapter 19, 
I want to look at the third word from the cross and see what Jesus tells us about the idea of family and what it means for us today. John chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. This is God's word. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw (coughs) his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. This is God's word. Now, every commentator who's ever talked about this passage knows that the mother of Jesus was Mary, and the disciple whom he loved was the beloved disciple John, okay, the author of this book. So maybe he was just being, uh, being modest, and instead of including his name, he said, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. But that, these are the two people in view along with Jesus Christ. And so what we have here, in the Gospel of John at least, Mary, the mother of Jesus, only appears two times. Only appears two times. In the Gospel of John, the first time is at a wedding in John chapter 2, where she says to Jesus, can you wipe off the disgrace of my friend who's run out of wine? And Jesus says, my time has not yet come. The second time we see Mary is here at the foot of the cross. Jesus is wiping away not only the disgrace of a family friend, but of the entire world. And his hour has finally come. Two things, two times that we see Mary. Okay, two times we see Mary in the Gospel of John. And as Jesus talks to Mary, he says to her, here is your son, talking about John, his most beloved disciple, his best friend. And then he says to John, he says, here is your mother. What, does this, what do these two sentences say about what Jesus tried to tell us and to communicate to us about family? I think these two sentences are packed with a whole lot more than what we might see at surface level. But the first thing that I want to point out here is that we are never released from the duty to honor our parents. We're never released from our duty to honor our parents. This is what Jesus is doing here. He's taking care of his mother. Now, around the cross, there was a lot of pain, obviously. So there's pain in Mary, there's pain in John, there's pain in all these people. But Jesus Christ, no doubt, was feeling the most pain of anybody else. I don't know about you, but I don't like pain. <laughs> Anyone here like pain? Good, no one. Okay, we don't like pain because that's how we are as people. I don't know why paper cuts, which you can barely see, hurt so much. I hate paper cuts. They hurt more than regular cuts to me, but paper cuts. And then uh, we have some people in our congregation that hate getting shots. And even though they're like dying and they're deathly ill and oh, I, have to, I have to get this medicine, they don't want to take the medicine because they don't want to get the shot. And there are times when I'm playing with my little, uh, with Elijah, and he doesn't, ha- he's like eight, nine months old now. And he doesn't really have muscle control, so he like, sometimes he gets excited, he just like flails his arms. And, and sometimes he hits me in my face, and I'm like, ow, Elijah, stop doing that. Why are you doing, why are you hitting me? All of these little things cause so much pain to me. But here at the cross, it wasn't just a paper cut. Like Jesus' back was lashed so many times within an inch almost of death. This is pain if you've never experienced pain. It wasn't just a shot going into his arm, a fatty part of his arm. It was a spear being pierced through his side. Blood and water 
hit the ground. And it wasn't just a little baby flailing his arms. It was grown men, malicious, vicious, just intent, every intent to hurt and to destroy, punching him, beating him. Right? This is pain in the physical sense. Emotional pain Jesus felt at the cross. People who swore their allegiance to him, I will never leave you, had three times within, that, within that, the past 12 hours abandoned him, left him, left him all alone. People that on Sunday, this is Friday, on Sunday, they were praising him, waving their palm branches, saying, Hosanna to the King of Kings, the Son of David is here. And that same group of people, crowds of people, screaming, crucify him, kill him, away with this blasphemer. Emotional pain, insults hurled at him, mocking him. A mock crown made out of thorns, thistles, placed upon his head, a rod placed on his hand, a robe thrown around him. And with his bloodied face, they're saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Emotional pain that Jesus is feeling. Spiritual pain. The third word, the next word, the fourth word from the cross, Jesus would say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If ever in this life we felt abandoned by everyone else, at least we know that God is here for us. But Jesus at the cross was abandoned by his Father, completely emptied, completely alone, completely stripped of every ounce of dignity and hope and comfort. If ever anybody knew pain, it was Jesus Christ. Right, this is pain. And we all know that the nature of pain is to draw ourselves intensely inward. And when you're in pain, when I'm in pain, we don't care about other people. Right? So I've had this, this cough for several, uh, for actually a few months now, and I got diagnosed by the doctor, and he told me what it was, said it's highly contagious. He said, you should not go to church. Don't get within 100 feet of anybody, especially don't get near any sixth graders because they might die. <laughs> so he diagnosed it as something a bunch of itises. And I said, well, you know what? Let me do my own research. And so I went online and I discovered that what I really have is what's called a man cold. Do you guys know what a man cold is? There's a difference between a man cold and a regular cold. Olivia, my wife, gets a regular cold. You know what a regular cold is? So Olive, she's, she's, oh my gosh, I'm so sick. She's got like, she's sneezing. She's coughing. She's got a sore throat. She's all swollen in her lymph nodes. She's got mucus coming out. She's got body aches. She's got pains, but she's still able to take care of the kids. She can vacuum the house. She can cook for all of us. She can uh, sweep the floor. She can clean the toilet. She can do the dishes, all this stuff. I'm thinking she's not that sick. But when men get sick, okay, we get what's called a man cold. Okay, this is really bad. It's not just a regular cold. We have all the similar symptoms, but it is completely debilitating. We can't do anything. We are like within one degree of death. It's like if, 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 I, if my temperature goes up half a degree, you got to call the paramedics. We are completely incapacitated, six days off of work. The only thing that can cure us is to lay down on our sofa, remote control right next to us. Wife brings us food. Right? We watch ESPN Sports Center for about six days, and then we can finally be cured. That's it. And if you've never experienced it, because you're a woman. <laughs> but that's what a man cold is. It is completely, completely incapacitating, and you cannot live. 
I had a man cold, and I, everything about me, I was like, don't touch me, don't bother me. All my meetings I canceled. I didn't want to meet with anybody. I said, I don't want to get you sick, but really it's because I'm selfish, and I'm in pain, and I don't want to deal with anyone's problems. So I'm like, cancel all my meetings, nothing. I'm not doing anything. I might write a sermon for next week, but that's about it. So completely incapacitated about this man cold, because that's what colds do. That's what pain does, is it makes us intensely selfish. But here we see Jesus in his moment of greatest human suffering and pain. In this one time in his life, in one time in any person's life, when he can be released from his duty to care for other people, Jesus, filled with all of this pain, looks at his mother and looks at his best friend, and he says to his mother, here is your son. And to his best friend, he says, here is your mother. Why? Because no matter what happens in this life, we are never released from our duty to honor our parents. Even at the point of death. And what does this mean? Here's what, it kind of looks like this. Uh, a few weeks ago, about six, six weeks ago, I was called in for jury duty. This is our civic duty. Right? Because we're all, if you're a citizen of the United States, you're thrown into this big pool and they call out your name. And if you get a letter, that means you have to go to report for jury duty. And it's always during the week, so you have to take off of work. Um, you get there, and there's like these, all these seats, and there's like probably about 1,000 people or so, hundreds of people at least. And nobody wants to be there because everyone would rather, they, even, if, even though they, they despise being at work, no one wants to be sitting in that room waiting for their dreaded number to be called. So we're all sitting there, and I've got my computer, and I'm doing some work, and there's like a cafe, and they're trying to make it cool. So they've got like this little restaurant experience. They've got these like computers where you can hang out. They've got TVs and, and all these magazines. But, but, but really, it's just a, a, a painful thing. Just sitting there, and every maybe like 30 minutes or so, they'll get on the loudspeaker, and they'll start calling out numbers. And you're just waiting for your number, and they go in, in numerical order. So you know your number is like 500. They go to 499, and they go to like 525. You're like, oh, thank you, Jesus. You don't have to go to, to, to jury duty. If your number gets called, then you've got to go upstairs. Right? You've got to get, take attendance, and then they ask you all these questions that you'd be selected to sit on a jury uh, for a court case. And nobody wants to do that because it, it can sometimes be many, many days that you have to sit in this jury and deliberate and talk about, is this person guilty or not guilty? What should we do? So as we're sitting there in that, in that jury selection room, it's like I mean, no one is talking to anybody else. This is like, I mean, this is a picture of almost a picture of hell where you're surrounded by people, but you don't talk to anybody. And there's all these people who are suffering together, but you can't commiserate with them because you don't know who they are. So you're sitting there, and we're waiting for our number to be called, waiting for our number to be called. And, and people say, you know, if your number's not called by lunchtime, they'll let you go for lunch, and then they'll call you back. And usually they'll let you go, but if they call you back, that means you're, you're, you're messed up because they might have to call you in. So they broke, let us break for lunch, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is terrible. So I went and ate lunch. I, I met up with one of our guys who worked downtown, and we ate pizza together. And then I came back in the room. They called another set of numbers, and then they said, the, uh, the judges have told us that there is no longer any need for your services. They say, thank you so much for your time. You are hereby released from your duties. You have fulfilled your obligation for the next 12 months. And as soon as they said that, 
It was like the hallelujah chorus busted out. Angels came down from heaven. We're like jumping up and but we're celebrating. We're like, yes, I'm packing up my bag. Got this huge smile on my face, getting ready to call Olivia. I'm coming home. Let's go eat. This is great. And, and people are high-fiving random strangers, hugging each other, saying, let's go out to eat. I'll take. They wouldn't actually want that that good. But that's kind of the idea because, because when we hear the loudspeaker come on, they say, you have been released from your duty. Here's what they're saying. You have gone through enough. You've been through so much pain and suffering that you don't have to fulfill your duty as a citizen for the next 12 months. He's saying, you don't have to do this anymore. But why is Jesus, in his moment of great pain, and there's not a moment where he says, I've been through enough. I've had enough. The pain is too great. Therefore, Father, can I be released from my duty to honor my parents? He didn't. Because he knew what the Old Testament said, the fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother. And he knew that there was never a moment, even with his dying breath, he says, I'm not released from this duty until I breathe my last. What does this mean? Because this is hard, because some of us have parents that we don't want to honor and who've done bad things to us. Or who are no longer alive. What does it even mean to honor our parents then? Hey, here's one thing it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean because in one place it says honor your parents. Another place in Ephesians says obey your parents. And it says in the Lord. I don't think there's many times where there's a blanket statement that says obey your parents. Even if they're like Hitler. Even if they're like you know, Genghis Khan or some awful person. It says honor your parents. This is what the Ten Commandments says. Honor your parents so that it may go well with you and you can have long life in the land. Why? You know, the older we get... The older I get, my parents still tell me to do certain things. They want me to do certain things. They say, you need to come back and move to Virginia, or you need to do this, or you need to take this kind of medicine. And I'm at an age in my life where I don't always obey what they say. I don't say, no, I'm not going to go somewhere I don't want to go. I don't want to go somewhere I'm not, I don't feel like I'm called to go. I don't wanna, I'm not going to do. I can't obey everything that they say. But I can honor them, even in my disobedience. Jesus, never in his life does he say, I have relinquished, I am released from my duty to honor my parents. That That deals with the attitude of our hearts. Again, even if we don't obey what they say or what they want us to do, it's about having this posture of respect for them. But even if, our, even if our parents are no longer alive, we can still honor our parents. Some of us are dishonoring our deceased parents because we're, we hold grudges against them, we're bitter against them, we haven't forgiven them. And one way that we honor our parents is by forgiving. It's by not talking trash about them. And we honor our parents. There's a lot of different ways that we can honor our parents. And we're, even if our parents are rotten, awful, terrible people, in our minds. Right? Jesus shows us that we are never released from our duty to honor our parents. This is the first thing that we see. And that was a long point, but that's the first point that I want to make. The second thing, all that being said, okay, all that being said, God is ultimate, not family. 
All that being said, God is ultimate, not family. You remember Mary when she was, uh, even though John only talks about her twice, in Luke's gospel, when Jesus was born eight days old, she takes him to the temple so that he could be circumcised as was his Jewish right and, and, and custom. And as she's there, there's, been a, there's a man named Simeon who's been praying for this prophesied Messiah to come for all these years. He sees him. He picks him up. Hakuna Matata, Lion King. He picks him up and he says, this is the one we've been waiting for. And then he says to Mary, says he will be the cause of the rise and fall of many people. In other words, he will be the dividing point of human history. All of humanity will be divided by whether you choose to follow him or don't choose to follow him. And then he says at the end, he says, and a sword will pierce your own soul also. And it says at the end of Luke chapter 2, it says Mary took all these things, she pondered them, and she treasured these things in her heart. So here she is, a mother's love, raising her child. And deep in her heart is this prophecy that would one day be brought to fulfillment that this child is going to pierce your soul and is going to cause pain to your heart. not going to stab you in your back. He's going to stab you in your front, in your heart. And so she's living with this, with this understanding. What does that even mean? And so you've got her as she raises this child, you know, the maternal instinct within her. Because he is her own child. The first words that he says and the joy and the delight to see him giggle, to see him smile. The first steps that he takes as he grows older. He goes, it's kind of like, I, I don't know if it's like this, but maybe it's like being the mom in The Incredibles and you've got this, this child who can run like 9,000 miles an hour. And, and this is Jesus. He's like running laps around everybody. She's like, calm down, Jesus. Or they're going swimming in the pool and... Like, Jesus, don't walk on water. Everyone else is swimming. They're going to think you're weird. And So she's got this. This is like the mother's instinct. And she's loving her child. And, and then he grows older, and he, he follows his dad. As far as we know, at least at 12 years old, his, his dad, Joseph, is still alive. And, and Jesus follows Joseph to the carpenter shop. And he makes chairs or tables or benches or whatever it is. And he's got sawdust all over him. And he comes home, and he's like, hi, mom, and gives her a hug. And like, oh, Jesus, go shower, you silly. And, and as he goes and washes up in his Jewish, whatever it is, washing up, and he's like, oh, that Jesus, my silly son. <laughs> so here's Mary just loving on her son like any mother would do, just doting on him and the oldest of, of her other kids. And, and then somewhere along the way, Joseph, her husband, passes away. We don't know much about him. We just know that, that that's the assumption that somewhere between 12 and, and 30, when Jesus was 12 and 30, that Joseph has passed away. And at the age of about 30 and 30 and some change, Jesus rises up and he goes to his mom and he's got the little belongings with him. And he says, Mom, it's time for me to go. And she knows that the man of the house is, is now leaving. <laughs> and she knows that it's not going to be the same. Yeah, she, she would see him here and there, but it wasn't ever going to be the same as it was for the first 30 years. So she hears, you know, John the Baptist is preaching, talking about him. She sees Jesus doing all these great things. And people are like, oh, my gosh, Mary, your son, he's doing all this crazy stuff. And feeding the 5,000, doing all these miracles. And then somewhere along the way, she's just kind of basking in the glory of her firstborn. She begins to hear people talking about him, saying all these, like, mean things, bad things. Right? He's crazy. He's demon-possessed. We're going to kill him. We're going to get rid of him. He's a blasphemer. He says he's God, all these things. Their heart just begins to break and begins to 
to sink and she's realizing that a sword is, is piercing her soul. And you get to the foot of the cross and she's followed Jesus on what's called the Via Della Rosa, the road, the way of the cross. And she's been following Jesus. And see, the worst thing, an Asian proverb says, the worst thing ever is when a white-haired person sees the death of a black-haired person. Meaning the worst thing is when a mother sees the death of their child or a father sees the death of their child or their grandchild. And a sword just piercing the soul of Mary, the mother of Jesus. She sees, how can you look at your son bloodied and beaten and mocked and spit upon? People yelling, kill him, crucify him. He could have been released the day before the Jewish custom Passover released one of the criminals. He was the least guilty of all of them. No charges against him that were found to be true. And yet everybody in that nation wants Jesus to be killed. And as she sits at the foot of the cross seeing this, the suffering and the pain in the child of her own loins, the child that was birthed out of her own belly, a sword piercing the soul of the mother of Jesus. Why? Jesus had to leave his mother's house in order to follow his father's will. Because Jesus was showing that God is ultimate, not our family. And even if it means causing pain and agony, the parents that we are called to honor. God is always ultimate, not our family. You see, Jesus died the same way that he lived. Matthew 10 said, no, anyone, no one who loves mothers or sisters or brothers or fathers more than me isn't worthy of me. Matthew 12 said, who is my mother and father, a mother and brothers and sisters? Said the ones who do the will of God, they are my True family. It says in Matthew 19, tell the truth, no one who's left houses or lands or fields or mothers or fathers or brothers or sisters for my sake will fail to receive all these things a hundredfold in this life as well as in the life to come. Jesus was living out the teaching that he was giving to you and me and to all of his followers. In fact, the only way Jesus can call us to do this is if he did that first. And he says, follow me on the way of the cross because this is what it will cost. And this is what it means to follow Jesus, that we're so in love with him that any other love in comparison seems like we are hating that person. That's what Jesus is saying. When he says you got to hate your father and mother, he's not saying that in, a, in an absolute sense. He's saying that in a relative sense. Every Greek commentator and scholar says that. Say this in, an, in, a, in a relative sense. That compared to your love for me, what you love, how you love other people should be so small compared to that that it looks like you hate them. Jesus is saying we need to honor our parents. We need to honor our families always, 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 even when we're suffering, even when we're hurting, even when we're dying. We're never released from that duty. But God is always ultimate, not our families. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, isn't it true that a lot of us are following God because we want him to bless our families? 
We have to pray for our families. Don't get me wrong. Jesus, I'm sorry, Paul in 1 Timothy 5, 8 says, uh, if you don't take care of your family, then you're worse than an unbeliever. And we need to care for our families. We need to pray for our families. We need to disciple them. We need to raise them. We need to honor them. But we can't confuse the means and the end. If we're using God in order to have better families, then we've mistaken the immediate for the ultimate. Because God is ultimate, not our families. He's saying, don't use God to build a better family. Saying, leverage your family in order that you might love Jesus more. I don't know how many times I've heard new mothers say, um, not new mothers, but new mothers after about six months say, you know what? I've learned so much about God's love for me as I mother my child. I've learned so much about unconditional love as I raise this child who can do nothing for me. I think that's God's intention. Not that we use him in order to build a better family, but that we leverage our families in order to worship and love God more. Isn't that the same thing with marriage? We don't use God. I don't come to church in order that I can pray and get a husband or a wife. We don't worship God and seek God in order that we might get a spouse. In fact, it's the other way around in Ephesians chapter 5. It says your marriage is supposed to point forth and picture forth how much Jesus Christ loves the church. And in so seeing that love, that's how you husband are to love your wife and to love your spouse, love your wife. And the same way how wives are to submit to your husband in the same way that we submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. Our families are utterly important, but they are not the ultimate. Jesus is making that painfully clear here painfully to himself as well as to his mother. That God is ultimate, not our families. We cannot confuse the means with the end. Because God is ultimate, not our families. And the last thing that we see. The last thing that we see is God redefines our family. It's important when you look at what he says in 26 and 27, dear Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. It's important to understand. This is why this is so loaded here. It's important to understand what Jesus does not say or what John does not record. John doesn't say that Jesus said, Mom, everything's going to be okay. Your other sons, my half-brothers, they're going to take care of you. I will make sure of it. He doesn't say that, nor does he say, dear woman, here is John. He will be like a son. Nor does he say, dear woman, John will take care of you. And to John, here is my mother. She'll be like your mother. He doesn't say that. He says, here is your son and here is your mother. Why? Because he's saying, I'm creating a completely new kind of a family here. A new kind of a family, not just a pseudo family, but this becomes your family. And this is mind boggling because we don't think in these kinds of categories. We say we're a family, but we don't really feel like a family sometimes. Isn't that the case? But Jesus is saying, at the cross, in my death, I am creating a new kind of a family where people who would never before sit together can sit together and be not like a family, but be a family. This is your new family. 
right? This is your community. How can Jesus say in Matthew chapter 12, when his mother and brothers are standing outside and people come and they say, Jesus, your mother and brothers outside, they're saying they want to see you. Jesus says, that's not my mother and brothers anymore. He says, who are my mother and brothers and sisters? They're the ones who do the will of God. That's my family. This is my new family. Because the blood of Jesus, he's saying, is now thicker than the blood of any human being if they're not part of my family. How can Jesus say, look, you can leave your fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. You can leave all that behind. And I will give you a hundredfold more. How can he say that? Because he's saying, this is your new family in me. And when your unbelieving parents desert you, you've got in this intergenerational congregation a new kind of a parent, a very real parent. This is your mother, your father. This is your son. This is your daughter. This is your brother, sister. This is what Jesus is saying. He's completely redefining our categories for what a family is. In a sense, he's saying, just like you don't get up and leave your earthly family for the sake of another one, he's saying, okay, you don't get up and leave your church family for another one just because you don't like it. He's saying, this is your new family. What is he telling us about the nature of a family here? This is what he's saying. The first thing he's saying is that this family is going to be broken and in pain because around him, the people that, uh, through which he's creating a new community are people who are deeply hurting and suffering. Saying, look, if you think your church is a people of pe- is a group of people who are not hurting, who are not suffering, then you have no idea the kind of family I'm talking about. When we went to Ecuador uh, two and a half years ago, and KJ Kim lost his son Tico, and we went back to Ecuador, and he's talking to these brothers and sisters in Ecuador, these church members in Ecuador. Every time he testifies, he says, "I lost a son, but I gained." Hundreds of new brothers and sisters. He always says that. He always says that. And then he says to the group of people who were in Ecuador when his son passed away, countless times he said, you know what? You guys are now my sons and daughters. This is not just emotional, sentimental. This is spiritual. And he means it when he says it. And he tells me, you know, I'm always, every day, I'm praying for these people. I'm praying for uh, the people who were in Ecuador for the people of Ecuador as well as our church people who are in Ecuador. Like he literally believes what Jesus says. This is my new family. When we, we have time to, to pray at night, when Olivia and I pray with Manny at night, we ask her, who do you want to pray for today? She doesn't know theology yet, but she says, I want to pray for my aunts. We say, which aunt? She has so many aunts within the church. She said, I want to pray for my, uh, I want to pray for my auntie, which means my older sister. I want to pray for my sister. Which one? And she'll say some people sometimes. Because she understands the language of children is that we have a family that is so much bigger than us. What is the nature of this family? This, I, I, I always go back to this quote. A guy named Yuri Bronfenbrenner says that a family is a group of people who demonstrate and implement an irrational commitment to the well-being of its members. An irrational commitment to the well-being of its members. He's saying, look, you are a part of a family 
What does this family look like? He says, dear woman, here is your son. And then he says to the disciple, here is your mother. Why does he say that? Here's why. He's saying to Mary, he's saying, look, this is your son. He's going to take care of you. But also, as a mother, you've got to take care of him. He says the same thing to John. He says, here is your mother. You need to take care of her, but she's going to take care of you. The nature of the, uh, of the family of God, the nature of the church, is it is a group of people who are hurting, who serve, and who are served by other people. Okay? Who care for others, and who are cared for by other people. Look, if you think that there's no one in this world who cares for me. Jesus is saying, this has got to be that place. Okay, this has got to be the place where you come in and you understand that you are cared for. And some of you understand that very well. You understand I'm being cared for, I'm being served, and people are taking care of me. But here's the other thing that he's saying. That's not it. That's only part of it. You need to care for and you need to serve other people also. Hey, don't just sit back and receive all this stuff that people are giving to you. You need to get up and you need to do that for other people. Because if you're not doing that, then you're shortchanging the family, my family. Because everywhere we look, people are hurting and people are suffering. And as much as you need them, they need you. And Jesus is saying, this is the family that I came to create. And this is the family that you're a part of. How can we do this with all these people? I don't think it's possible. That's why if you read throughout the New Testament, you cannot read Paul's writings to the churches without one greeting the church, but then saying, greet the church that meets in, in these homes also. And we have to be in house churches because it's the only way that you can give and offer care the way that Jesus intends for it to happen. <coughs> You've got to be, whether you call it house church, whatever you call it, smaller groups of people where you can care and you can receive care from other people. You see, Jesus Christ <coughs> is dying the same way that he lived. Completely selfless, completely giving himself to other people. He says, this is what I came to do at the cross. If you're hurting, if you're suffering, if you find in this world reasons for your soul to be scarred, that at the cross, you find resources in a community that is available to you whereby you can serve other people and be served, where you can care for other people and be cared for. There's nothing else like it in the world. Jesus says, I died in order that this might be a reality. Pray together. Let's pray as we reflect upon these truths. Some of us are really good at letting others care for us. But we're not so good at caring for other people. Jesus is saying, look, at the cross, I've made it possible as I cared for you, for you to care for other people. That's the family of God. I don't talk about they don't care about me if you're not caring for other people. Others of us, we're really good at taking care of other people. When it comes down to it, we're not really good at letting other people take care of us. We're not very good at letting others serve us. Not very good at letting others pray for us or help us out or give us something. 
And Jesus is saying, your role in the family is to serve and to be served, to give and to receive, to care and to be cared for. Hey, others of us, maybe the, the place where this hits us is that we've relinquished, we've released our duty to care for our parents because we think that we're old enough or we think that they're too bad. If they're so bad, then we can't respond to evil with evil. That, that evil has to stop somewhere, and it stops when we begin to realize that I don't have to fight fire with fire. There has been resources given to me through the blood of Christ in the gospel of Jesus Christ <laughs> that even though <laughs> they've treated me badly, I can still honor them. Maybe others of us, we've made our family an idol rather than a servant. Maybe we've made that the ultimate thing and God's calling us to come back. Whatever, whatever the word of God has spoken into our hearts today, let's take a moment just to respond to God's word as we uh, just pray quietly in our hearts to the Lord, saying, Lord, help me to live this out as I give my heart to you. Let's pray for just a few moments and then we'll continue in our service. want us to imagine ourselves maybe sitting at the foot of the cross. What are the things that you feel are lacking in your life relationally? Feel like you don't have a father? Hear the words of Jesus saying, dear child, you have a father. Feel like you don't have siblings? children, parents, to sit at the foot of the cross and hear Jesus saying, my dearly beloved, my brother, my sister, here is your sister, here is your child, here is your parent, whatever it is that we need. Jesus paid it all so that we might have a family and we might be adopted. We might have a place of care. Just hear those words wash over our soul as we receive the blessings that flow from our crucified carpenter, Savior Jesus. Receive the blessings of God and believe that this is our inheritance because of Christ. If you're um, next to someone, if they're your spouse, you can hold their hand. If they're someone of the same gender, someone in your family, let's just um, either hold hands or put our hands on our shoulder. I just feel I feel like the Lord is just saying to some of us, "Hey, let your family care for you. Let your family care for you. Let the people around you care for you. 
you carry the weight and the baggage of hurt by yourself for so long. Let your family care for you. It's okay to take off the sunglasses and let your tears fall. Let them care for you. Let's pray for one another right now. And just pray into their hearts. If you know what their needs might be, let's pray for them specifically. If not, pray, Lord, help them to know intimately, personally, they're part of a family. Let's just pray for one another that way. Lift each other up. Pray into each other's lives. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the the sacrifice of your one and only son. That you saw, in fact, you had to turn your face from your son as he took upon the sins, the suffering, the pain, the punishment, the guilt, the shame of the world upon himself. And you abandoned him to die so that he might be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, so that we might have a father, so that we might have a family, a place that we can be cared for. Father, forgive us for not caring the way that we should, for not letting people care for us the way that we should, for not loving and serving the way we are. Would you cleanse us and wash us by the blood of the Lamb? so that we might be the kind of family that you're calling us to be. The kind of family that's so countercultural in this world, that dysfunctional family, that a family that's filled only with entertainment. May we be a new kind of a family. Broken lives would be healed. Orphans would be brought in. The lost would rejoice in the arms and the embrace of the Father and His family. We're part of something so much bigger. Help us to believe that and help us to live that. We thank you so much. We love you. We pray you sing in Jesus' name.